I'm going to read you a very short story. And then I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. A little girl named Mary goes to the beach with her mother and brother. They drive there in a red car. At the beach, they swim, eat some ice cream, play in the sand, and have sandwiches for lunch. I'm going to ask you four questions. I don't want you to shout out the answers. Just answer the questions in your mind. What color was the car? You guys don't follow directions very well, do you? <laughs> Did they have fish and chips for lunch? No. <laughs> this isn't going to work if you don't follow directions. I said, I don't want you to shout out the answers. <laughs> Did they listen to music in the car? Did they drink lemonade with lunch? Now, how many of you answered the first question, red? And the second question, how many of you did you answer, no? What about the third question? How many people answered yes? How many people answered no to the question, did they listen to music in the car? How many people answered yes to the fourth question, did they drink lemonade with lunch? How many answered yes? How many answered no? Okay, you guys are fairly, fairly quick here. This is a little exercise that the guys from Freakonomics, I don't know if you've ever listened to their podcast, but Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner, in one of their books, they use this little exercise to show that contrary to popular belief, it is not I love you that are the hardest words in the English language to say, but it's I don't know. Because to the third and fourth questions, we should have said what? I don't know. Because the story didn't tell us what if they listened to music in the car or what they had to drink for lunch. So we should have said, I don't know. And they brought this because this was a question to a kindergarten class. And 76% of the kindergartners had an answer for question three and four. Yes or no. 76% of them, instead of I don't know or the story didn't say, they answered either yes or no with conviction. And so they said, if kindergartners do this, we know this is why adults have a hard time saying, I don't know. And I wonder if that's something that you have a hard time saying, I don't know. You see, we live in this information-laced age, right? That most of us, if, if we say, I don't know, to a question that's answered of us, it's a sign of what? Weakness. And if we can just stall the answer long enough to get to Google, we will know. Because that's where we find all our answers about everything, isn't it? It's online. We are tempted just to go online and listen to those who have blogs and web pages that we read and news stories that may or may not be true. We seek advice from social media gurus and influencers way too often. 
We do it for important things like how to raise our family or theology and things like that. If you don't think, I'm, if you don't think this is true, I can tell you stories, multiple stories of people who went from solid doctrine in a solid church to heretical doctrine because they listened to somebody online who sounded like they were smarter than the pastor and the people in the church. And they got twisted away from sound doctrine because they went online and they believed it. And they were brought to heresy. Multiple times in in our ministry has this happened. And think about family. Used to be, where did you get your wisdom when you had your first child? Hopefully you got it from your mom or a mother figure in your life. Now where do we get it? Whoever the influencer is online. Because that's where we get our knowledge from about everything. I can think of a family right here in Arkansas, very famous, umpteen children, that used to be worshipped by Christians all over the place. You know what I'm talking about. They used to worship them. They were the perfect family. Now we know they aren't, and they weren't, and they never were. But we are influenced by knowledge that we get. Now, I'm trying to paint a picture here. Knowledge is not bad, is it? But if if we limit what we know by our finite minds, we're going to be in trouble. And knowledge is not the end result, is it? Wisdom is the desired result for a believer. If you just have a bunch of knowledge but you don't apply it, you don't have any wisdom at all. And I would say you don't even really have true knowledge. You just know about something, you don't know it. It's wisdom that we need to cultivate and that wisdom oftentimes is limited by our own understanding, our own thinking, because we know all the truth, we know all the ideas, we are evaluating, evaluating other people based on what we think. Well, that sounds right, or that doesn't sound right, or more important and less valuable and more dangerous, I like that more than I like this. I like that group of facts more than I like this group of facts. What we need a good dose of is not just the ability to say, I don't know. And you know I'm using that as a metaphor for all kinds of lacking in humility responses, prideful responses, because we have to be the people who know everything. What we really need is a good dose. Luke prayed this for us, and he didn't know I was going to say this, of insignificance. That's what we need. We need a good dose that we are insignificant. It, means, it doesn't mean that we're not important and we don't have meaning in life. It means compared to what is ultimate, we are insignificant. And when we look at all the information in the world and try to suck it all in so that we can be the knowledgeable one, we can have all the tidbits, we can know all the trivia questions, we can have the answers whenever anybody asks it, then our thinking about ourselves rises to a point where we are not insignificant anymore. Everyone around us is insignificant. Now here's where that really gets us in trouble when we think about God. See, oftentimes we think about God because we think about his word in this way. We think about God through our lens, our finite box. We think about God and we have to be able to put him in our box and understand him. And that's the height of arrogance and really the height of stupidity for us as created beings, is it not? What we need to do is read the word and believe the word because it is significant in our life because it reveals to us everything God wants us to know. It's all there. And so when we come into situations in our life that we don't have the answer, 
I, here, I don't want you to answer this, and I really mean I don't want you to answer it this time. I want you to answer it in your heart. How much time do you spend reading and studying your Bible compared to listening to podcasts and reading blog posts and keeping up with the news? And I'm talking about all good things, right? I hope you listen to good blog, uh, uh, podcasts and read good blogs. But how, many, how much time do you spend reading and studying and meditating on the scriptures instead of all the other stuff that just tell you what to think about the scriptures? When we have the word of God in our language, more resources than anybody else has ever had in the history of humanity, and the Holy Spirit. And yet we think all the time, what do you do first? Google it. I don't know, I'll Google it. We need to find in ourselves that insignificance that says, I'm created by a God who revealed himself to me, and he redeemed me, so I start in his word. That's what people in Isaiah's time needed to hear. Do you remember the first 11 verses of Isaiah 40? Do you remember this promise of salvation? And remember, he's, he's speaking to people at the end of the 8th, beginning of the 7th century, but he's speaking also directly to people who are going to be in captivity 140 or 50 years later. And he's speaking to them about a time that is not even yet known about being in captivity. And God has, through Isaiah, said, I'm going to redeem you. And he's given pretty great examples and and, um, theological sense about what he intends to do in those first 11 verses. Now Isaiah turns to the question that he expects some people to ask, and he wants to take it away from them if they do. Is God able to deliver us? Is he able? And that's what Isaiah begins in verse 12, alluding to in verse 9, but beginning in verse 12. Of course God is able. And God has revealed himself in Scripture as a God who is able. And he's revealed himself in Scripture as the God of power and might and wisdom that we can't even understand in our own lives. And if we just let the word speak, we'll realize, I don't have any idea of the greatness that that is trying to convey but I know it's trying to use, the, God is trying to use human terms that I understand to convey to me an infinite God so that I worship him in spirit and truth. An infinite God so that I trust him in every situation. An infinite God so wisdom I get from any other place but the scriptures does outweigh what God says. And that's what he does in Isaiah 40. So turn there. And as you're turning... My goal for us today is to think of God as the Bible reveals him rather than by our own limited understanding. Think of God as the Bible reveals him rather than controlled by our own limiting understanding and our own wisdom. Let the scriptures reveal the infinite worth of our Lord and Savior instead of thinking of ourselves more significant and keeping God and his character in the dock of our own courtroom. Isaiah chapter 40. Let's stand together. I'm going to start in verse 9. We covered 9 through 11 last week, but 9 through 11 begin this section. It ends verses 1 through 11, but it also begins our journey into 12 and following with the behold your God statements. So we need to hear them all together. Isaiah 40 verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, 
Behold our God. Behold, Adonai Yahweh comes with might and his arm rules before him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters of the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him, with, and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness." To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot and seeks out a skillful craftsman and sets up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers and spreads them, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted Scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because of his strong, he is strong in power, not one is missing. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in these verses, beginning in verse 12, We are shown five reasons Yahweh is able to deliver his people. Five reasons Yahweh is able to deliver his people. And what we are looking at in these verses is one of the most joyful and full descriptions, not the only one, but one of those in the scriptures that bring God to us in ways that we can say we understand by the words, but we cannot understand completely by the concepts because he is other. 
He is, he is other than us. Yes, he is, he is close to us. He is eminent with us, those who are his people, and he will be to the people that when he judges them who are not his, but he is also other. He's transcendent. He is infinite, and we can't completely wrap our minds around all of what he reveals to us in his character, but Isaiah brings this God down into a place where we can contemplate him and realize he's incomparable and that we cannot fully even contemplate the words that God uses through Isaiah. Remember, the people need to hear when they're in captivity with seemingly no hope. The promise of Isaiah 41 through 11 seeps into the distance. Those are just the words given to our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers. But they need to remember the words of Isaiah who tells them from the 8th century in their captivity in the 6th century, that their God is powerful to deliver them. And they should not doubt that. Don't put God in your box. Let him keep where he is in the infinite realm and let him carry out his promises to you. So the first reason is God is the all-wise creator. Look at verse 12. These questions that are asked. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? Now I want you to just contemplate this because this is anthropomorphic language for God, right? God does not have a body, right? He is spirit. That's why he seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. God the Father does not have a body. The God, God the Son comes incarnate in time and space. We see as he comes according to the Old Testament and in the New Testament revealed, but God does not have a body. So when we're thinking of God, we're not thinking that he actually have hands or scales, but these are ways that we can contemplate how infinite he is. He who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Do you know how many gallons of water are estimated on the earth? 326 million trillion gallons. A little bit more than our national debt. 326 million trillion gallons. Now picture the hollow of your hand where you would just put a little, a little blotch of shampoo to use on your hair or maybe just a little bit of water. He puts 320, where's my number? (laughs) 326 million trillion gallons in that palm of his hand. And we're saying, that's a mighty big hand. No, that's a mighty big God. He created them and he controls them. And he can put them right in the hollow of his hand because he is so mighty and powerful. He's marked off the heavens with a span. You know what a span is? From here to here, thumb to pinky. He marks off the heavens. Everything that we can see and everything that we can't see, he does with with this, the span of his hand. He doesn't have that big of a hand. He's that big of a God that he creates them all and he marks them out. And this is not only just say, well, there are are the, the cosmos. I think, yeah, I think I can get them all there. He created them according to that. He created everything in the world and he marked them out when he created them and they're still under his rule. They're still under his reign. He holds them together. This is the God that we serve. Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure. 1.04 times 10 to the 25th power. That's how many tons of dirt there are on the earth. 1.04 times 10 to the 25th power. I don't even know how many zeros that's going to be, but your calculator can't handle it. 
But God enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And really the word is kind of like a partial measure. It means third. So whatever measure we have that God would use to do his work, he puts it all in a third of it. This is a great and glorious God that's before us. And we're thinking, okay, I'm starting to get the picture. He doesn't, I can't even picture a hand big enough to put all the water in and measure that, the, the cosmos out like that. I can't even picture a God. You're right, because we can't picture the fullness and the glory of God. But he reveals himself to us in our creation. He reveals us to us, himself to us in his word. And we start to get the feeling that, okay, I don't understand this completely. And if God is that mighty and that powerful, and he continues in his description, doesn't he? And weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Now we think of scales in a balance. Think of what they would have done in the ancient times, just this little uh, scale that the, they were in control of to weigh the, the creation, whether it's gold or silver or flour or, or rice or whatever else. This is God who before us weighs the mountains and the hills, all of them in a scale or a balance. His tools dwarf mountains and hills because his being and his character dwarf everything in his creation because he created that. He created it all. He spoke it into existence. This is a God who is Powerful. He is, an, he is a creator par excellence. He is the creator of all creators. But verse 13 continues and he gives and tells us that he is also wise. So he is the all wise creator. Look at verse 13. More questions. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? The New Testament quotes this verse as who has measured the mind of the Lord. They take it out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And we say, well, what is this meaning here? Well, who has measured every, the, the, his will and his counsel and everything about his being? Who has measured the mind of the Lord? Who has measured everything about the Lord? Keep going because our context tells us, or what man, sh- what man shows him counsel? The parallelism that's there. Who has anything to say to God? Now, when you need counsel from someone, which I hope you seek counsel when you need it, amen, that's a biblical thing to do, but when you seek counsel for someone, what are you doing? You're going to someone who is wiser than you, maybe has more knowledge than you, to make sure that you're not making a mistake that you can avoid by learning about their wisdom and their knowledge. Well, there's no one that can talk to God about that because he has all wisdom. He is the one who gives all truth and all counsel. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Verse 14, whom did he consult and who made him understand? He doesn't have anything lacking in his being. He doesn't have anything lacking in what he knows. He knows everything. He knows everything across all time and all space and he knows it all, the end from the beginning, equally true. This is the God that we serve. We can't remember where we put our car keys. And God knows everything, every bit of knowledge from all of history. He knows it all at once, all the time. Because he knows everything. He's omniscient. Nobody, he, he doesn't consult anyone. Nobody makes him understand. He has the understanding. Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one. Now you can't act justly if you don't know what is right. 
And you can't just know what's right. You have to take what's right and use it wisely in order to enact justice. And since God has all of this, possesses all of this in his character, it's perfect at all times. It's not, it's not infringed upon by other characteristics of God. He constantly, forever and ever, always has and always will act in these ways. We can't even fathom what that must be like. We're so fickle, we can't carry out a commitment that we made today about tomorrow. And God keeps this all together. And yet we at times want to tell him how he ought to run the world. We at times want to tell him what we don't like about what he's doing in our life, about our situation. Now, there's one thing about praying to God against evil, praying to God for him to act in certain ways. It's a total other thing to be dissatisfied with the world that God has placed you in and to blame it on him as if we need to give him counsel, as if he doesn't have all the understanding, as if he doesn't have the wisdom, as if he didn't create it all and maintain it all. Isaiah wants the people in exile to know that, and Isaiah wants us to know that. You see, what we're building is a case here that we should never, ever turn anywhere else for wisdom except to the scriptures that reveal himself to us. I'm not saying you can't go to other people, but you better go to people who know the scriptures. I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to people online, but you should listen to people online who know the scriptures, and then you go back to the scriptures to see what they said of right, not just your own desires or whether you like or didn't like what they said. The scriptures are how God reveals himself to us. Nobody taught him the path of justice. Nobody taught him knowledge. Nobody showed him the way of understanding. Now the questions assume no one does this. The questions of verse 12 assume God is the answer. God is the one who is measured and marked off and and, um, enclosed and weighed. 13 and 14 assume the answer, no. Psalm 115, 13. Three says, our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Psalm 136, six, 135, verse 6. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth in the, and in the seas and all the deeps. Our God does what he pleases, and we are his people. So we praise him as he works. We trust him as he works. Well, he's not only the all-wise creator, but secondly, the second reason Yahweh is able to deliver his people is he is the all-powerful sovereign. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. So the nations, that's the most powerful grouping of people, right? The nations have leaders, good leaders, bad leaders, but leaders, people who are in power, and they represent the power of those armies and those people. But the nations, they're like a drop from the bucket. Now, we know that phrase. You didn't know that phrase came from Isaiah chapter 40, did you? It's like a drop in a bucket. And what do we mean by that? It's insignificant, right? If you're carrying a bucket, a five-gallon bucket of water and a drop falls out, do you care about that? Now, if it's acid, maybe you care. But if it's water, you don't care. It's insignificant in the scheme of things. Well, the nations are like that. They're counted as dust on the scales. Just picture the scales and thinking, oh, better get the dust off. It might give us a bad measure. Well, dust on the scales aren't going to do, not the scales that we're using. I'm sure there are scales that dust would matter. But the point of this is, it's insignificant if there's dust on the scale. It's not going to change things at all. 
Behold, verse 15, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust, the islands. He picks up the islands and does what he wants with them as if the, if the dirt and the sand falls through his fingers. Compared to God, the nations are insignificant. He is the one who rules over them. He is the one who is the sovereign. They may think, now we've seen this a lot in Isaiah up to now, right? Isaiah is talking to a group of people who understand what it means to be under the thumb of a powerful but evil nation. He's reminding them those nations, the nation who holds you into captivity, Babylon, that they don't mean anything. They're insignificant compared to the power of God. Verse 16 Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. You could take Lebanon. We know this already from Isaiah. Known for its cedar trees, their height, their strength, their plentiful nature in Lebanon. You could take all of them. If you could take them all down, every single one of them, clear cut all of Lebanon and take all of the animals that are in it and order a sacrifice, that sacrifice is insignificant compared to what is needed to come to this God who is this powerful and this sovereign and this holy and this wise and this full of perfect character. He is so other than us that Isaiah begins to run out of ways to tell us. All the nations, verse 17, are nothing before him. Notice that? He doesn't say they're nothing. He says they're nothing before him. They're insignificant in comparison to him. Their power is insignificant compared to his. Their evil is insignificant compared to his goodness. Their weapons are insignificant compared to his power and what he accomplishes. Their plans are insignificant compared to God's plans. Before the Lord, they are insignificant. Before us, before the Lord, we are insignificant. And hallelujah that we are. Would you want to worship the Lord who is limited by your knowledge and your wisdom and your power and your might? I wouldn't want to do that. We're worshiping this other transcendent God and the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Tohu, that Genesis chapter one language. This is what they are in relation to God. Now that is a good thing if the nations know their place, isn't it? Then as Psalm 2 says, it's not he who sits in the heaven laughs at them, but they are coming to kiss the sun because they recognize that they're insignificant compared to their creator. So God is the all-wise creator. God is the all-powerful sovereign But third reason Yahweh is able to deliver his people is God is the only true God. Look at verse 18. To who then will you liken God? Now, if this is God, what we've just learned, and we could go, I mean, the the psalm that Luke read, just full of descriptions of God in his creation. We could go to other psalms as well. We started out there with Psalm 8. We could go to Psalm 19, Psalm 119, many different places and see the power and wisdom and majesty of God. And just this little bit that Isaiah has brought us, who then will you liken to God? And we would say, if we're listening and our hearts are right, no one. And we would be joyful in that. But sometimes we let knowledge be our pursuit instead of wisdom be our pursuit. You say, you've already said that, Rob. Yes. I need to hear that again, do you? That's the point 
that we're being driven home, that God is other and we are insignificant before him. Our worth is in him and in his son who will be introduced to in just a moment. That's where our worth comes from. We have the scriptures before us to reveal God, but sometimes we get overloaded on information that's outside of the scriptures. And we get in this hamster wheel of clicking on another link, a hamster wheel of going to another source, a hamster wheel of, especially when we're going to find somebody who agrees with us, it's easy to just click out of one link and get to another and go, ah, this person has their stuff together because they agree with me. And we can be on this knowledge search, information overload. But our goal is to pursue and act upon the knowledge that we have. So the question comes to us. If you know this about God, whom will you like in God? Verse 19 brings the, the, the comical, ironic nature. An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a gold, goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood. So in other words, they may not be able to, to afford the gold and silver, but they're, they're going to choose wood that will not rot or valuable wood, maybe your translation says. They can't, they can't afford the good stuff, but they still need to make an idol. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. You see the irony, right? This God who created the universe and sustains it, has all knowledge, has all wisdom, has all power. He is before you revealing himself to you and saying, come to me, and we are building things out of what he created from nothing, and we're building them in such a way that we now worship them. So we not only take the material from creation that he, is, that he created out of nothing, but then we're creating something out of it and says, oh, that's better. That, that's more powerful. That suits me more. I kind of like the golden calf a little bit better. And they don't even stand up. They're like Dagon. Remember Dagon and the Philistines? Put, they, they put Dagon, their god, the fish god in there, falls over, falls over again, arms break off, head break off, sitting over the doorpost. That, even that idol that was crafted by men, made out of material that God, the creator, made, it, made he still controls it. What a foolish thing. And we say, of course it's foolish. We would never build an idol out of silver or gold or wood and put it up and worship it. We would never do that, would we? And yet we do. We have things in our life that we elevate to a position in our life that are so exalted in our life that if God takes them away from us, we're mad at God. If God takes them away from us, we think we don't deserve that because that's something that we put up there. And we don't even know it until God reveals it to us. Because when he takes it away, you can tell whether it's an idol of how you feel about that. If your first response is, man, how am I going to make it now? Instead of the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because we have God as our inheritance. And yet we lift things up and we put them in places that take our time, our effort, our worship, instead of spending the time in the word and in worship, worshiping this one true God who knocks down idols with the breath of his mouth. And we build them. 
We take his good gifts and set them up as an idol the same way the ancients took his created material and built stuff and things out of them and bowed down before them. Let us crucify that. Let us crucify that. Because we're a sophisticated people. We would never put the, the idol on our shelf, right? But yet we often live this way. We live this way in the way we think, in the way we th- think about knowledge, in the way we apply it, in the way we look other places instead of the word of God to get our problems solved. That's all idols when the Lord who created the universe and sustains it reveals himself to us in this You know, Spurgeon once recommended um, young preacher boys to make sure that they read the books that they had on their shelves before they bought new books. Anybody need to hear that advice here this morning? I'll lead the parade. I will lead the parade. But his point was not just to read them. His point was read them, digest them, meditate upon them, understand them, own them. Because much time spent in one good book is much better than a little bit of time spent in 10 good books. Well, I want us to pull it back even further than that and say, let's make sure we read the Bible before we read the other good books. And when we read the other good books, make sure we're the Bereans that go and search the scriptures to do what? To prove that they are true. It's what we tell people all the time when people are trying to preach or teach. Don't go to the commentaries. Spend the time in the word. Meditate upon the word. Memorize it. Chew it. Take a sentence that you don't understand and chew on it all day long, whatever your tasks are for that day. Think about, meditate upon it. Ask the Lord for wisdom. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal you the truth of that. And when you get done doing all that, it's not wrong to go see what smart and godly people have said about those verses in the past. It's not wrong to learn from them. But if you only read about what other people say, then you're reading about their experience with the one true God. You don't gain the experience with the one true God. This is what's being shown to us. God is an all-wise creator. God is the all-powerful sovereign. God is the only true God. Fourth, God is the always ruling king. Look at verse, beginning in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Now, what's the, what's the answer to that? Yes, we do know. We have been told. We have understood it. God spoke in creation enough that that he said that his invisible attributes and his power could be known through creation and that's enough to condemn a man for, for suppressing that truth with a lie and building the idol of themselves. So it's all around us that God spoke and we have his word. We hear it every day. Most of you have more Bibles on your shelf than people a thousand years ago had in their whole town. And yet they collect dust many times. So we have the word of God. We have God speaking to us through his spirit as we read his word. So we do know. We do know. If we read, we know that God is presenting himself as something other who has sent his son to come close to us so that we could come close to him. So yes, we have heard. And these yous here are plural. So he's speaking to the whole group of them. And this is what he wants to remind us. 
It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. So that circle of the earth, it's only used in two other places. Job 22, 14, um, the vault of heaven is the way the ESV translates it. And Proverbs 8, 27, the circle of the face of the deep. So this is either talking about the way we view the horizons or the heaven. And if if you've ever looked out in a, a starry night, it does feel like a dome above us because of the way we are looking at the skies. And so this is what's being talked about. It is he who sits above that, above the circle of the earth, above everything that he's created, everything that we can see and that that we cannot see, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So this God is this big. Remember the span, the palm? If he is that big and that powerful and he sits above everything he created as if he's standing there, sitting there, ruling and reigning over everything that ever happened all time, all at once, at the same time, this is the God that we serve, then we are insignificant. We're like grasshoppers. It's not a knock on grasshoppers. But these little grasshoppers are insignificant compared to God. And what's he saying? He's not talking about grasshoppers, is he? He's talking about us. We, the inhabitants of the earth that he sits above, are like grasshoppers. He is the God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. You know what a tent is like. We know even a big tent, how many people they can put in that. God spreads out the heavens for him to reside in. He was not, nothing contains him, but we understand what it means to have to pitch a tent to stay in at night. God doesn't need a tent, but if he did, the heavens would surround him because he sits above the circle of the earth because this is the great and grand and powerful and sovereign God. And he brings What we've already seen in one way, verse 23, he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as tohu, emptiness. Now he doesn't do this because he hates the rulers of the earth. He does this because he is the sovereign and no one will take his throne. Now we think people can take his throne. We we act as if, some people especially act as if they will be God. But God is the one who sits enthroned, always ruling, always reigning, the king of all that he has created. Verse 24 gives us the scarceness of these rulers. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. In other words, we think we're planted, we think we're sown, we think we've taken root, but it's just scarcely, it's just barely, it's almost as if it wasn't. Why? Because when he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. They are insignificant to the power and majesty of the creator God. The all-wise creator, the all-powerful sovereign, the only true God, the always ruling king, and the fifth reason Yahweh is able to deliver his people, God is the incomparable creator So you see how he bookends this section. He starts with creation and and his his sovereignty over, but also the magnitude of his being compared to his creation. And now he turns again to have us look at the creation that he is the incomparable creator. To whom then 
verse 25, will you compare me? Now that's a restatement of verse 18, but he's given us more information, right? So we have, even if we, this is the only, stranded on a desert island, we have Isaiah 40, 12 through 26. We have a lot about God to meditate on for a lot of time on that stranding, being stranded on that desert island. And so he asked them again, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One, Now, this just puts us right back in our insignificant position. And I reemphasize this is good to be insignificant. It is good because we worship a God who is so much greater than we are. We're not even comparable. But it is also good because he has acted in favor toward his people. And he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so he is incomparable. No one is like him. And aren't we thankful? And we're reminded of this Isianic phrase, says the Holy One. And it's really just an adjective. Keep saying holy as in a noun, the Holy One. He's constantly saying who should be like him. Because why? Why would God always say that? Because glory goes to him. And it should always go to him. It should go to nowhere else and no one else but God. And he is constantly receiving glory from himself, from his creation. And we can't fathom that because we think, well, if I take glory all the time, I'm what? I'm arrogant. I'm prideful. And we are because we don't deserve glory. God deserves all the glory. And he's constantly speaking as the Holy One. That Isianic term that reminds us of his character. Lift up your eyes, verse 26, on high and see who created these. This word for created is the word that is used all through the Old Testament only about God when he creates. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. So he's speaking of the stars here. Calling them all by name. He created them. He knows each one individually. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, no, not one is missing. So the number of stars, more than a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone, estimated one septillion stars in the universe, one with 24 zeros, probably more than that, but that's the number the scientists calculate and try to figure out as they, ga- as they gaze into what we see as space. And every time we get a little bit further, we're amazed even more. God created all of them and knows every star by name. And he holds them where they are and knows them, and not one of them is missing. In other words, he knows where everyone, none gets away. And we don't have a rogue star out there someplace that God doesn't know where it is, and he goes, hmm. I wonder where Alpha 43975 went. He doesn't know that. He doesn't experience that because he he created it all and he sits above them all and he has them numbered, septillions of them numbered and knows their name. Now let me ask you something. If he knows the stars by name, do you think he knows these people by name? If he created them and sustains them and knows where they are and knows them by name, do you think that when when he recreates us, He gives us new life. Do you think he knows our name, knows where we are? Do you think Psalm 139 comes into this great light that we can't escape his gaze? We can't escape. Where can I go from your presence? I can't flee from you. 
If I wanted to, I can't flee, but thank goodness when I don't want to, you know where I am at all times. You know my name. You know the number of hairs I have on my head. This is the God that we serve because he created us all. And you might say, well, wait a minute. How do we, how do we know that? How, how do we know that we are part of God's people? Well, that's the whole promise that we're being brought in Isaiah 40, is it? Isn't it? God will redeem his people from exile. He will redeem them. He will redeem us from sin. And how does he do that? He does that because he sent his son. He sent his son. I want you to turn back to verse 26 or 16. I'm sorry, verse 16. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering was the sin offering. That was what would deal with sin in the Old Testament economy. God deemed it to be so, and when it was offered and offered with the right heart, it would cover their sin until the next offering. And there is no amount of earthly wood or animals that could provide an offering that will always cover sin. But when he sends his son... He sends his son, Jesus, the Messiah, promised in the Old Testament so that he does what the Old Testament promises and he lives a perfect life and dies on a wooden cross. He created the wood upon which he died in order that we might have life. A 19th century preacher by the name of Octavius Winslow said this, little did they dream as they bound the fatal wood upon his shoulders by whose power that tree was made to grow, and from whom the beings who bore him to the death drew their existence. So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself. He created the trees upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. Oh, the depth of Jesus' love to sinners. So when we look at this, we see its application in a nation physically in exile, but we experience its application as people freed from the bondage of sin. That this God who created the universe and created us pursued us even after the fall when we were, when we were devastated by the sin of our forefathers, devastated by the sin of Adam, and he still pursued us so that we would have life. And if he intended to do that, to pursue the people who were his elect from the foundation of the world, do you think if he can hold the stars in the sky and know them by name, any of those elect will be lost? None will be. Do you think if you're here right now and you're professing faith in Jesus Christ that you can ever, would ever be lost if you are truly saved? You will not because it's not up to you. Now, if it was up to you, you'd probably have your own wisdom and your own knowledge leading to that wisdom that would get you in trouble. But the Bible speaks very clearly. So those of us who are in Christ, this this is just, this is fuel for our worship for days upon days upon days upon days because we can't fathom a God who could take all of the the tons of water on the earth and put it in the palm of his hands. We can't fathom a God who through no sin of his own died on a cross that he created, suffered the wrath of his father so that we would have life and fellowship with him, so that we would have the inheritance of living forever with him. That's why Isaiah 40 is a prescription for worship for us. 
I said at the beginning I wanted us to understand what it means to be insignificant before God. Because we find great glory when we are insignificant before God. Because then he gets the glory of our lives. We get sanctified because when you live like this <clears throat> and you realize that God orchestrated your steps, God orchestrated the world in which you live, God orchestrated all the things that in the world's eyes would be bad for you, he orchestrated them all, that he's not out of charge or in control. Remember, a septillion stars knows them by name, doesn't lose one. I think he could probably handle the daily exploits of our life. I think he can probably take care of that. I think we can trust that a God who is this all-wise creator, all-powerful sovereign, the only true God, the one who doesn't fall over, made of his own creation, always ruling king, incomparable creator, it's safe to trust our lives even when they don't make sense to him. And the only way to do that is to be insignificant and trust what the word says about him and let our understanding of him be shaped by the word instead of our own wants, desires, and idols. Isaiah is passionate about that for his people. He's passionate for us and I'm passionate for you and I to grasp this vision because it's not swimming in the dirt, is it? It is seated in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ and all his blessings because he is the significant one. He is the one who has come to live and die and rose again. And to this morning, if you are outside of that, if you're looking in saying, I wish I could have that, today is the day of your salvation because the Bible says, this is not the wisdom of man, it's the wisdom of God spoken in the words of the Bible, that when we repent of our sins, turn away from our sins and turn toward Christ and put our faith and trust in Him because we are insignificant and He is the most significant, then our lives are then brought into relation with Him and all His blessings are our blessings. The ability to fight sin now becomes ours. The ability to glorify God now becomes becomes ours. Our hearts are turned toward him. We're still insignificant. Our significance comes from him. And we're being in union with him and we are seated with him. So let's pursue that life. The insignificant life before our sovereign God and creator. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it constantly captivates us. Constantly brings to us a new way to understand you and your power and your might constantly keeps us in our place. And that place is as worshipers. That place is not dependent on our own thinking, but on yours. That what wisdom we do have would be wisdom from above and not from below. The wisdom from heaven and not from man. That we would trust you instead of anything in our own world. That we would find our joy in you instead of the idols that can captivate us the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, the pride of possessions. We pray, Father, that you would overwhelm us with a sense of your glory because it captivates us. It washes us. It cleanses us from our own desires to want to be something that we can conjure and lets us focus on the indescribable blessings that you give to us. So I pray, Father, that we would be transformed, that our complaining would stop, that our, that our faith would be strengthened, that, that our lives would be strengthened, that our witness would be strengthened to a lost and dying world because they don't see us, they see you. They see your greatness. They see the greatness and love of your Son. So make it so for us, Father, because we live in your world 
You've created it and you maintain it and you've placed it in, we've placed us in that world with a mission as we wait for the next. And we're here for a short time. So strengthen us and send us on your mission now. Because when we get to be with you forever, this will seem like just a blip on the radar. So help us to practice now living in your world. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.